February 20th, 1980, that was the night that an entire nation watched a miracle take place. That team that you just watched was made up of college students that were going out to play the first game in the medal rounds of the 1980 Winter Olympics at Lake Placid. They were going up against the Soviets who were basically professionals from Russia. The same teams played earlier in a pre-Olympic match and the Soviets beat them 10 to 3, smoked them. The year before the Olympics, the Soviets had played an exhibition game against our NHL All-Stars and had beaten them 6 to nothing. There was absolutely no way our hockey team had a shot to beat the professional Soviets, the powerhouse of the world, except for one guy, Herb Brooks. Herb Brooks was the coach of the Olympic team. And he had actually been the last person cut from the 1960 Olympic hockey team. That was the first team to ever win a gold medal for the United States in hockey. He was the last player cut from that team. He went on to be the coach at the University of Minnesota. He won three national championships there. And because of his success there, they asked him to come and be the coach of this Olympic hockey team. His influence became a major reason why that became what was voted on as the greatest story in sports in that century. And it's a great example of what we can do as a church when we live our sixth core value. Now, we're in a series called At Our Core. And I want to make sure you know where we are right now. We've focused on, we got four core values. It is the undeniable message of Jesus. We've already talked about that. Right now, we're talking about the unbreakable body of Jesus. And this is the sixth value. This is one of the values that's in there. And here it is at the top of your sheet. Write this in. We value spiritual legacies. And we expect the next generation to see greater success than the current one. We value spiritual legacies and expect the next generation to see greater success than the current one. So I'm looking at a room full of coaches. None of you are named Herb, I don't think. I don't think any of you speak with a northern accent. You're above, it's a room full of coaches, okay? And if we're going to live this value well, if we're going to coach well, we're going to have to do three things. First, we have to set the example. The Bible is clear about one thing. Our faith is not a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do faith. Okay, I'm going to throw a bunch of scripture verses at you. You just write them down. Are you ready? Christianity is much more like follow the leader. You ever play that game growing up? That's what our faith is like. Jesus started the game. Luke 9, 23. Jesus says this in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 14, 27, he says the same thing. Matthew 10, 38, he says it again. Mark 8, 34, he says it again. We are to follow Jesus daily. The game continued with Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 4.16. 1 
Philippians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he pointed us to Jesus. So here, I want you to get this picture, okay? We're playing this big game of follow the leader, and for a while, Jesus walks on the earth, right? I mean, he like actually lived. He was walking on the earth, and so people followed him. And then, whoop, I don't know if it made that sound effect when he went up to heaven, but whoop, he's up in heaven. We call that the ascension. You want to be really brilliant today? Just turn to your waitress while you're eating and go, I know what the ascension is. And she'll say, isn't it like a, was that like when the south left the north? <laughs> no, silly. I don't know what that was called. <laughs> the ascension is when Jesus went back up to heaven. So he went to heaven. So does the game of follow the leader stop? No, because Paul says it continues through him. He says, now you follow me as I follow Christ. We're still playing follow the leader. And it, now, is Paul still around? I mean, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote a lot of the Bible? No. So is the game of follow the leader over? No. And why is that? Because now the game plays on through us. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Do not let anyone look down upon your youth, but set an example. Set an example. The Greek phrase for that literally means come onto the stage. Ta-da! I love that. Any of you guys like to be on the stage? Like if we had a spotlight right now, how many of you would just be jumping all in that spotlight? Right? There's some people that love that. Some people are like, don't put me in the spotlight. I'll freak out and start sweating. That literally means Part of our job as Christians is to come onto the stage. Ta-da, set the example. Give them something to follow. The next generation will reflect the best and worst of us. I found this um, article online. I was just looking for like embarrassing things that kids say. If you have children, you know that they can come off with some pretty good ones, right? So this lady is sharing this experience that she had where she's at the doctor and her kid looks up at her and goes, Mommy, my butt itches so bad and I really, really want to scratch it. And so she's asking all her friends on Facebook, have you ever had anything like that happen? And here are just some of the responses that I can actually read to you. One lady wrote this. While discussing the Ten Commandments at Vacation Bible School, comparing God's rules with rules the kids might have at home, my oldest, about seven, said this. At my house, one of our rules is, you don't drink from mom's cup of soda when it has liquor in it. <laughs> Another mother wrote in and said at the grocery store, her kids screamed pirate at a man wearing an eye patch. It's nice. Um, let's see, my four-year-old son felt the need to warn old people that they will die. He told a lady in the grocery store, old people die and you're not looking so good. <laughs> My six-year-old grabbed our rabbi's butt and said, squishy, squishy. <laughs> I want to hang out with these kids. I mean, I don't want any of your kids. I'm not a rabbi, so don't do that to me. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's see, um, a child aged three looking at a morbidly obese lady dressed in red in a store said, holy crap, that's a big red shirt. 
mom diving under the uh, see saying our dinner prayer with the family my five-year-old wanted to say the prayer so being that he wanted to be the big boy we said sure and he said god is great beer is good and people are crazy <laughs> do i get bonus points for the country song reference in the sermon do i get more bonus points if i could actually sing that line because <laughs> i could <clears throat> i love this might, might be my favorite Walking by the wine section, the wine section of Whole Foods. Mommy, look at all this mommy juice. Look, mommy juice everywhere. <laughs> Wonder what mommy drinks at home. <laughs> my husband took my four-year-old son to his uncle's funeral. To his uncle's funeral. When they were bringing in the casket, my son said pretty loudly, What's in the box? <laughs> Oh, why does, it, why does this happen at funerals that I do? That's, that'd be great. Because if I was the pastor at that funeral, I would have probably said, can we just open it and find out? <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Moving on. Uh, last one. When I quit smoking, my five-year-old told her kindergarten teacher that she was proud of me because I quit drugs. <laughs> oh, Wow. So the deal here is that kids are learning from us. Is that fair to say? Um, if we could have you come up and grab the mic, you could also tell stories that were embarrassing for you when your child said something that they heard you say. Um, I don't know if you all have the same experience that we do as parents, but we typically tell our children, don't say that, and then we realize that they probably heard us say it. Not fun. Okay, much more fun to laugh at other people's kids, not at your own. Kids are learning from us all the time. The, the word in 1 Timothy 4.12 that says set literally means things coming into existence. It is more about showing than just telling. Does that make sense? Sometimes we, we think of set the example like, now let's have a family powwow. And I'm going to set the example. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be in my house. This is what it's going to be. If you do anything different, I'm going to still love you, but I'm kicking your butt out. Because I'm setting the example. But the Greek word isn't more about this. It's more about setting the example, living the example, being the example, showing the example. That's what we're called to do. Bottom line is this. What you do may very well be what the generation coming behind you does. Set an example of righteousness. I'll talk about my youth pastor twice in this sermon. Here's one. One thing that he told me I never forgot. He said, what the leaders do in moderation, the followers do in excess. What the leaders do in moderation, by the way, that's a good one to write down. What the leaders do in moderation, the followers do in excess. What that means is, and you've all seen this. How many of you lead people? You're a teacher, a boss, whatever. I used to have this happen. I know you're going to find this hard to believe. When I was youth pastoring, I'm really bad about getting some like, I like say something that's funny, and then like people just go crazy. They start laughing. And before long, I'm looking at a room full of teenagers going, shh. But it's because I said something funny. I'm chuckling about it, and I do it in moderation. They do it in excess. We could have a quick experiment right now, and I could stand up and go, hey, everybody start jumping up and down. And I could just 
do this, but before long, what's going to happen with all these children in here? Hey, they're jumping all right on the counter, and they're swinging on the lights, and they're jumping into the TV. What the leaders do in moderation, the followers do in excess. It's, it's true negatively. It's also true positively. So if we're going after God as a generation, it's completely possible that what we've done in kind of moderation, the, the followers, the next generation, man, they do in excess. They exponentially go after God. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is set the example. Does that make sense? You don't talk people through follow the leader. You lead them through follow the leader, right? And everybody wants to be the leader because you get to make all the cool motions. Do this, you know. But you don't tell them that. Okay, next it's going. I'm going to put my hand on my head, but I'm not really going to do it. But you do it. You lead them through it, okay? So you set the example. Second, we state the expectation. Turn your Bibles very quickly to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're not going to read the whole chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 3, we can learn a lot from the story about Eli training Samuel. But here's the biggest thing that we learn today for, for what we're talking about today is this. Eli stated an expectation. Verse 1. In chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, page 348, the left column, second verse. If you have a giant print Bible, page 348 got you to Genesis 3. <laughs> that was funny. I heard somebody snort when they laughed too. I'm just saying. So we're at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Here's what I want you to hear today. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. So the word of the Lord is rare. And as a result, if you read that story, three times Eli gets woken up by Samuel. Samuel says, I think you're calling me. You're calling me. And Eli's like, dude, I'm not calling you. Go back to sleep. You ever had your kids wake you up at night? It's always when you're in the deepest sleep, isn't it? Kind of wake up a little disoriented. You don't quite know what's going on. He's getting woken up, and he says, look, I'm not calling you, dude. Go back to bed. Why does Samuel wake Eli up when he hears his name called? Because that's the status quo. That's what always happens. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. So did Samuel expect to hear from God? No, because the word of the Lord was rare. So he just followed the normal expectation. I heard my voice being called, my name being called. It can't be God because the word of the Lord is rare. It must be Eli. So Eli is raising Samuel. He's raising the next generation, okay? So what does he do? He states the expectation. He looks at this guy and says, I'm not calling you, but here's what I want you to do. Next time you hear your, your name called, just don't come wake me up. Leave me alone. I'm going to sleep. But you say this, speak, Lord. Your servant listens. He, he just like blew Samuel's mind. Samuel said, speak, Lord? It can't be the Lord talking to me because in these days the word of the Lord is rare. 
He had an expectation. And Samuel said, I'm going to state another expectation, a different expectation, a greater expectation. It could possibly be God speaking to you. To be brutally honest, sometimes the next generation settles because we don't raise the level of expectation. Everybody under the age of 25 starts shaking their head right now. Do you know why, do you know why studies say that 4% of people under the age of 30 go to church? Let me say that stat again. 4% of people under the age of 30 attend church in America. Do you know why? Because we've never raised the level of expectation. They say, I've been there, I've done that, hated it once, I'll probably hate it again. Same old, same old. <gasps> Yawn. Right? But if we state a different expectation, if we raise the level of expectation, what you'll find is the next generation will respond to that. Uh, uh, let me just, it's easier if you watch it in a clip. I've got a clip um, just to show you of how one father communicated this very principle to his son, how he kind of raised his son's expectation. This is only going to end up bad for you, and it's going to end up bad for me. You think I'm hurting you? Yeah, in a way you are. That's the last thing I ever wanted to do. I know that's not what you want to do, but that's just the way that it is. Don't you care what people think? Doesn't it bother you that, that people are making you out to be a joke, and that I'm going to be included in that? Do you think that's right? Do you? You ain't gonna believe this. But you used to fit right here. I'd hold you up to say to your mother, this kid's gonna be the best kid in the world. This kid's gonna be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching every day was like a privilege. Then the time come for you to be your own man and take on the world, and you did. But somewhere along the line, you changed. You stopped being you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame, like a big shadow. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is gonna hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what, no matter what happens. You're my son, you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. Don't forget to visit your mother.
I think if we could say one thing, speaking as a middle-aged generation <laughs> to the next generation, if I could sit an entire generation down, I would say this. You're better than that. You're better than that. We have a generation that's coming up that, I'll be honest with you, I mean, I don't mean this to be ugly, but I'll just tell you the truth. The greatest temptation your generation has is to settle. Just to settle. Get a job, make good money. God, don't settle. You are better than that. And let me just talk to the older generation. The worst thing that we can do is let them settle. Uh, what's marriage? It's just a, just a certificate. We'll just like hang out together. We'll live together. We'll do whatever. You know, we'll just have separate bank accounts. We'll just kind of be together. We'll, you know, it's just marijuana. It's just one, it's just one not looking at porn. God, yeah, God loves me anyway. He's a God of grace. Let me tell you something. What that gets you is a life of lukewarm compromise. And somebody at some point, hopefully with less plastic surgery than Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> will look at you and say, don't settle for that. Man, girls, well, don't raise your hand because you might, like, the, the guy might be here. But have you ever been on a date and halfway through the date you realized this was a bad idea? You realize, man, I, I said yes, but I settled. This guy's not, he's not even worth five minutes of my time, and I have given him a whole evening of my life. Don't settle. You are better than this. Listen, write these verses down, okay? God is a God who raises the standard, who raises the expectation. Thankfully, God is not rocky, okay? But I think he does look at us and he says, here's what I plan for you. Write these down. Psalm 84, 7 says that you go from strength to strength. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that you go from glory to glory. John 14.12, Jesus himself looked at his disciples and said, you will do greater things than I did. God is not a God of settling. He is a God of greater things. He's a God of more glory. Our legacy <clears throat> must be one of more. Our legacy has to be more strength. More glory, more kingdom victories, not less. I, listen, I hope that my children do so much more than I ever did. And I don't want to set the bar low. Does that make sense? Because, I mean, if we just sit around on our butts and eat Cheetos and drink, you know, RC Colas until we pass out and die, then we set the bar fairly low and probably our kids will do better than we did. But I want to set the bar high. I want to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. And then when I die, I want to go to heaven and hear Jesus say, dude, have you seen what your kids are pulling off? I mean, you did good, Paul. I, I was big in you, but dude, look what Parker and Will and Sydney are doing. I mean, I walk with you, but man, I'm walking with them. Set the bar high. State the expectation. Don't let them settle. Write this little phrase down, okay? 
when we communicate the expectation of more, we aren't offended with less. When we communicate the expectation of more, we aren't offended with less. Let me just explain what I mean by that, okay? Um, John 14, 12, you don't have to turn there. That's where Jesus said, you know, to his disciples, you'll do greater things than I'm doing, right? So how many of you know that Jesus did some pretty good things? Raise your hand. That's an easy question to answer. Everybody got that one right? It's clear that our great works don't diminish his great works, right? He's not saying, well, I mean, Kenny, you're amazing. And you're going to do a lot better things than I did because you're Kenny and I'm just Jesus. That's not what he's saying, right? He's just, he's just explaining a principle of the kingdom of God. One, there's a lot more of us. There's a lot more time. And it's a, we, we serve an exponentially greater kingdom. It grows greater and greater and greater. So Jesus himself, who did the most great work you could ever do on the cross, still turns to his disciples and says, you're going to do greater things than me. When we expect more of the next generation... We are willing to accept the reduced role that we might actually play. Second quote from my youth pastor. Here's how, here's how he explained it to me. He said, you're never ready for the spotlight until you're willing to put somebody else in it. Write that one down. I mean, you got all kinds of stuff to put on Facebook today. You're never ready for the spotlight until you're willing to put somebody else in it. One of the things that's going on in American church today is you got this new generation that's rising up, and they kind of have an idea how they'd love to see church done, and that's cool. And then you have this not-so-young generation that says, we've never done it that way before, and we're not going to start today. Because they've not accepted the fact that when you... When you tell another generation God wants to do greater things through you, more things through you, it does invariably mean that he will do less. Maybe they're going to do greater than you. They're going to be more successful. People actually might say, I love to hear Phil play the guitar and sing. Um, hey, Paul, would it be cool if Phil did that and you didn't? Ah, now I can get offended. Do you see how that works? See, it's all fun and good, right? While you're mentoring, tutoring, we all kind of had the little chuckle, chuckle. We, you know, Phil's doing his best, but it's not as good as Paul. But when the day comes that suddenly he is, how do I respond? Um, some of you know Josh Baldwin, Kathy's son. He's, if you don't know Josh Baldwin, again, Google's your friend. Go to Google. Search for Josh Baldwin. Josh, you owe me for this if you make CD sales off this. Um, phenomenal worship leader. Writes worship songs. He's just great. He learned guitar from his youth pastor, Jerry Earnhardt. You can also Google Jerry Earnhardt, but you'll find nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. I don't mean that to be mean towards Jerry, but Jerry will actually say this. He'll say, you know, I taught Josh to play guitar. I taught him three chords, and the rest is history. There's a principle there. He, he took Josh as far as he could take him. He gave him what he needed, and then he just said, go. Do you see that? that? That's what we're looking for. 
That's how you create spiritual legacies. I mean, not necessarily that really weird movement that I keep doing over and over again. Go. <laughs> but spiritually, that's what we're called to do. And when I say we're, I'm talking like, look, if we just divide today's crowd into two generations, you kind of got your under 30 and your over 30, right? And so there's one generation that's, we know a lot, and God's calling us to expect the next generation to see greater success than our generation. And when you start to raise that expectation, state the new expectation, God does not want you to do what I did. He wants you to do better than I did. When you say that, you have to actually applaud when they do. Instead of grumbling because you didn't get to be in the spotlight. Let me just sum this point up and we'll move on. The greatest saint I ever met in my life, her name was Sister Freyer. And she was about this tall, and she was a member of my first church, and she was about 300 years old. And she wore glasses that were this thick, and she walked stooped over like this. And she just was one of those people that when you talk to her about Jesus, she would start to cry all the time. And she just, why are you crying, Sister Freyer? I just can't wait to be with Jesus. Because she had lived so long, she had no friends because they'd all died. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean that mean. I mean, like, her, she had outlived her family. Her, I mean, everybody was with Jesus. And she's like, when do I get to go? She just was that close to Jesus. Well, we had this youth group called Crossfire. Awesome name. And so we made these Crossfire t-shirts. And on the back of our t-shirt was like, um, you know, when you look through a scope and you got the crosshairs, that was the back of the t-shirt. So... Again, Sister Freyer, she would come once a month. We had Youth Sunday, and it was always on Sunday night. So here's this, like, 300-year-old lady. She would walk in with white shoes, white pants, and our white Crossfire T-shirt. And she had a hump in her back, and it fit right in the middle of the crosshairs. It was just an odd little thing to see, but she was kind of like a female old Pat Boone, if you're from that generation. You know, Pat Boone always wore white. Anyway... Let's just linger there for a moment. And now let's go on. I, I walked up to her one day, and, and I just said, Sister Freyer, because, um, you, know, you know, when you're assembly of God, it's brother or sister. And that's, anyway, Sister Freyer, I'm glad you come to you Sunday nights, but can I just ask you, why? I mean, why are you here every Every time we have youth Sunday night, I mean, this is a church that seated 480 people came. And so you got like 20 teenagers and, you know, 60 adults, and one of them is Sister Freyer, and you're praying she doesn't die during the service. And I said, why? I mean, why do you come out at night? Why do you drive? Why, why are you here? And here's what she said. I've had my time. I just want to support the young people. I'm just like, God, give me a church full of Sister Freyers. I mean, granted, they wouldn't be able to see anything, but the heart, I've had my time. Now, compare that with what, how we typically think of seniority. Listen to this statement. In God's kingdom, seniority does not get you a building with your name on it. It gets you a building filled with the next generation waiting to be trained by you. The kingdom of God is not about seniority. It's about spiritual maturity. 
Now, you want to do the seniority thing? Go to work because it works there. You work long enough, you could probably get a bigger, bigger office, maybe a bigger nameplate. But in the kingdom of God, seniority is just some way that God's able to look down and go, oh, well, you've been serving Jesus long enough. You're ready to teach. That's what seniority gets you in the kingdom of God. I know you don't necessarily believe me. 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul encourages Timothy to entrust to reliable men the truths of the kingdom of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Paul's writing to the older women and the older men and how they need to live and train the younger women and the younger men. This is the kingdom of God. Our generation gets to raise the expectation. So we set the example. We state the expectation. We, we say, don't settle. You're better than this. The world might have this way to live. But the kingdom of God says, you can do this. And a lot of times, it seems like it's not possible. The standard of God, it's so high. Who could ever attain it? And I'm just telling you, if I could do a Rocky Balboa voice, I would just, don't settle. You can do this. Not because you're, I mean, you are nice. I like you. But not because you're good, but because he is good in you. Because Philippians 1, 6 says that he will begin the good work that he began in you. He is faithful. He will do it. So the third one is that we see the end. It's really good to motivate. Um, I don't know how you reacted to that opening scene where Herb Brooks has given the pregame speech, but I just wanted to grab a hockey stick and hit somebody. You know? Just, just give me the chance to cross-check somebody. Bam! Face plant them right into the plexiglass. A little blood. It's, it's one thing to motivate, okay? It's a whole other thing when you motivate and then you release them to do it. Anybody here that played sports, athletics, you've been, you've been kind of in that situation where you had a pregame speech, and if it's a good pregame speech, now, not like the one that I had, when I was in the eighth grade and we played in the championship game at the Stanley County Invitational, you know that you have reached the zenith of athletic prowess when you're playing in the championship game at the eighth grade of the Stanley County Invitational because it included like four teams from Stanley County. But we were in the championship game and, you know, we're sitting on the bus and my coach delivered the pregame speech and it was he went around and just kind of told everybody what, you know, what he appreciated about them. And, you know, it's like, you know... Um, Hey Bob, you're a great you're a great guard, and 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 Tony, you're, Tony was like this guy. It was like a brute, and he was like in the third grade he had a beard, you know. And so he's like Tony, man, the way you you box out and you rebound, it's awesome. And you know, and Sean, man, what a great point guard. When you're dribbling down the court, you're not watching the ball. You've always you got, got great court court vision. You're always looking to make the pass, and on and all the way around. And he gets all the way around to me and Doug, and he looked at us and he said, Paul and Doug. You guys are just a lot of fun to sit with on the bench. <laughs> Thanks, coach. You know, that's not the kind of speech that makes you want to run through a wall, right? That kind of makes you want to stay on the bus. <laughs> you guys, go, go do it. Win, the, win it for me. 
But, but that speech by her books, the speech that some of you some of you've heard your coach, can you imagine sitting in a locker room and hearing a speech like that and getting amped up and then not getting to play? I mean, to quote some of the most brilliant people in our culture today, come on, man! Are you kidding me? You're going to get me pumped up and I don't get to do anything? That's why 4% under the age of 30 go to church. Because they hear about what they can do, but they never actually get to do it. We don't want to just set an example. We don't want to just state an expectation. Hey, you could do greater than we can do. We actually want to see the end. And what I mean by that is this. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. It's the last letter that Peter wrote. And here's what he said. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Some of you... Um, you can re relate to that. Have your parents ever told you something that you already know? Ugh. And you're just like, shut up. I know. Well, your parents are telling you the same thing for one of two reasons. One, you ain't doing it yet. Or two, it's just that important. Like, how many times? Can you say wear clean underwear too many times? No, it's really important. Wear clean underwear. Wear clean. I've got clean underwear on. All right, I'm just checking. I mean, I'm not checking, checking. I'm just asking. You don't want to check. It's awkward. So Peter's saying this. Even though you already know them, I will always remind you of these things. Here's why. Verse 13. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Verse 15 is the verse that I built my entire youth ministry career around. And here it is. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Older generation. Don't be offended that I said older because I'm with you, okay? Anybody over 30 today for our purposes here. Is it your goal that the younger generation, the next generation, will not need you to succeed? Because it was Peter's. He saw the end. He knew there was going to be a day when he would not be around. And he said, because the end is coming, I am going to make every effort. I'm going to remind you and remind you. or I'm going to endure you rolling your eyes at me. And I'm going to keep telling you and telling you and telling you. Because I'm going to make absolutely sure that upon my departure, when the goodbye comes, you will always remember these things. He saw the end. He reminded them, practice Practice. I used to hate to practice piano. Not used to. I think I probably still would if I was doing it. But my mom was like, yeah, you go to practice. Ugh. I mean, nothing makes you want to slap your mom more than that. I mean, you don't do it, of course, because God kills you if you slap your mom. He said to practice. He reminded them so that they would remember them, so that when game time came, they would not have to keep checking with the coach, what am I supposed to do now? 
oh, we talked about this. He, he just reminded us that it would be just second nature. So that even when he was gone, the truth would be a part of their character. Here's the bottom line. Mm, these are not words you want to hear, I know. Everybody over 30, look at me. Bottom line, you will be gone. You will be gone. You have had your time. And now it's time to set a standard, raise an expectation, and release a younger generation to go play the game. That's what Herb Brooks did. I want you to watch the last clip from that movie. Um, this is the movie Miracle. It's just the retelling of that story. Um, I want you to watch what happened at the end of this game.
Two days later, the miracle was made complete. My boys defeated Finland to win the gold medal. Coming from behind once again. As I watched them out there celebrating on the ice, I realized that Patty had been right. It was a lot more than a hockey game. Not only for those who watched it, but for those who played in it. I've often been asked in the years since Lake Placid, what was the best moment for me? Well, it was here. A sight of 20 young men of such differing backgrounds, now standing as one. Young men willing to sacrifice so much of themselves, all for an unknown. A few years later, the U.S. began using professional athletes at the games. Dream teams. I always found that term ironic because now that we have dream teams, we seldom ever get to dream. But on one weekend, as America and the world watched, a group of remarkable young men gave the nation what it needed most, a chance for one night, not only to dream, but a chance once again. There's really only one way to end this morning, and it's going to be to pray for the next generation. Let me say this to you. Two things about that hockey game that people don't know. One is that the United States changed their rotation to keep fresh legs in the game. But the Soviets, too, the Soviets relied on the veterans. Now, I'm not saying that veterans aren't good. What I'm saying is fresh legs, fresh vision is an awesome thing. And when the announcer said, I can't believe how in shape the fitness of the American team this late in the game, it was because they were fresh. He went, he went with a youth movement. And the Russians went with what they had always had. He sat the young people and put the veterans in, and they became tired. Your moment is now. I believe in your generation. I believe in our generation, too. Don't get me wrong. But I believe the best is yet to come. I believe if you've read this on the Internet, I believe it's time to hold on to the fork. Keep your fork, because the best is yet to come. The meal was great. The dessert's going to be incredible. Let me say this. All of us stand on the shoulders of someone. Nobody got here by themselves. So I'm going to ask you, if you're, if you're 30 or younger, I'm going to ask you to stand. 30 or younger. 
stand. <laughs> I'm just standing because I need to see everybody. I'm not really 30 or younger. Let me just say this to you guys that are standing. One, it's your time. Two, I believe that your time can be better than my time. And number three, do not settle for less than what you were made for. At the gathering, we fully expect your generation to see more success than we did. We also believe that we will set the bar high for you. You will have to bring your A game to outdo our generation in the kingdom of God. But we expect you to do more, to have more success. We value spiritual legacies.